0: Right, let's get after it. If you have a Bible, Hebrews chapter three. If you don't have a Bible with you, there is a hardback in the seat in front of you. Feel free to uh, use that this morning. We'll be in Hebrews chapter three. We'll pick it up in verse seven. We are debuting a new uh, worship guide today, and we're uh, all pretty proud of it. Uh, so you'll see uh, on the inside, we have the the worship notes, uh, sermon notes, and then on the back, the big improvement is we have announcements up at the top. So you'll have. Uh, something, a hard copy of announcements, uh, and be able to stay in the loop here. Um, Hebrews 3, we'll pick it up in verse 7. Hebrews 3, verse 7. I love preaching here at FC Cubed. Uh, it's my favorite place by far to preach. I mean, it's home, It's so home is home, and, and you're comfortable, and you uh, know what to expect, and you know what's going to be there. Um, but I also love speaking at other places, and so God has blessed me, and, and I get to speak at schools, and different youth events and different churches and things like that. Um, when I first got started preaching both here um, and elsewhere, it was about two years ago, uh, and a church up in North Texas had invited me to come. They were doing like an area youth gathering, they wanted me to come preach for it. Uh, and so it was, it was um, really, it was my first paying speaking event, uh, and it was uh, it was a good travel distance. It was the longest I've ever traveled to go speak. So I was excited. I was pumped about it. I was like, this is awesome. We're going to do it. Um, the only problem was it was about six and a half hours north, uh, and so... Um, I drive, so you have to be pretty high up there to fly places to speak. I'm a driver. Uh, and so six and a half hours north. I had it was a Wednesday night, like 7:30, and I had a day free. and My Wednesday was free. Um, but the problem was Thursday morning I had a biology test at eight in the morning. Um, and if you know me, I'm, I'm not the greatest at biology, anyways. Uh, and so struggling in that class, had an eight o'clock test the next morning. But I'm like, I'm going to do it. And so my plan was to drive up there for six and a half hours, and then to preach, and then to drive back through the night uh, and get back in time for my test. Um, Thursday morning, wow. you laugh now. It sounded like a good idea at the time. <laughs> so, uh, so I did, and six and a half hours is a whole, So, I mean, we get up there, and um, and so I've got, I mean, adrenaline and going through the sermon and everything like that. And then after I preach, I'm exhausted. Like I'm just wiped. And so I preach, and it goes well, and I'm wiped. I start driving back, and um, I kind of have the the after speaking high, and so I'm, I'm good to go for about two hours. Uh, and at about 12, twelve, twelve thirty, one o'clock. I'm um, pitch black on just a boring road with nobody else out, uh, and I'm just starting to feel real miserable. Um, and so I'm really upset. Like, I'm just starting to get really angry uh, that I'm stuck in a car with four hours ahead of me and uh, pitch black and then have to take a test in the morning. And so I'm angry at everybody. I mean, I'm angry at the nonprofit I'm working for and then speaking for. I'm angry at the fact that I have to be in school. I'm angry at all these things. Then it, I'm like, whose idea was this? <laughs> I'm like, okay, well, I'm angry at myself. This is my idea. I'm stuck here. So it started out as a really exciting, like, oh, this is awesome. I get to go travel. And uh, it, it turned from excitement to kind of grumbling, uh, to to. This is miserable. This is miserable. This is not a good idea. Uh, and then things got worse. Um, maybe about three hours into the trip, I started just getting real drowsy. Like, real tired. I mean, I was wiped. I was exhausted. So I don't know if you've ever been driving uh, and you, you do one of these, like, and then you like wake up. Yeah. Well, after about like six or seven of those, I was just a little concerned about three hours ahead of me in the middle of the night. Um, and, and so I'm getting drowsy. And, and so I'm going through like the techniques, right? I mean, turning the music up real loud and getting the bass going. Uh, Texting? I, no, I wasn't texting. Calling a friend. <laughs> <laughs> Is that recorded? I didn't. Wasn't texting at all. <laughs> yeah, they're yeah, going sh- rolling down the windows. That's actually a really good one, actually. Uh, and so I, I kind of go through the techniques, and I'm just real tired. And, and what I ended up doing was pulling over and taking my rest there and sleeping for a few hours, and then getting back right in time for the test. Actually, did done the test, uh, and so it all worked out okay. But I, I tell the story. Because in many ways, it mimics our Christian experience. So, if I know anything about Christians, I know that most are real excited when they start following God. I mean, they're real excited. This is awesome. I get to do this. I get to share in this. And then it's not long, maybe two years. I mean, I don't know, maybe a couple days. I don't know what it was. But it turns into like a, oh, this isn't as fun as I thought it would be. This is, in fact, there's a lot of this I don't like. I don't want to do this. I don't want to be here anymore. I mean, almost every Christian I've has gone through this space. You're excited, you're ready to go, you're starting strong, and then at some point, for whatever reason, you're just kind of slowing down. You're just kind of not as excited, not as into it as you were before. And then also, a lot of Christians, they they start, maybe without noticing, falling asleep at the wheel. Like, they start taking their attention off of their faith. They start taking the pressure, the gas pedal, they start letting up on it. And then before you know it, I mean, you're in a very dangerous position when you're when you're... Tempted to go to sleep at the wheel. I mean, you close your eyes, you don't know when you're going to open them. In a ditch, in a hospital, maybe not at all. And now, the passage we're going to be at in Hebrews in chapter 3, as we finish out chapter 3, is going to be all about his warning and lesson for us Christians who face these temptations. Who face the temptation of starting strong and then kind of dying off, and then face this temptation of of just kind of going to sleep at the wheel. And so, he's going to start here in verse 7, if you have your Bibles, Hebrews 3. Verse 7, we will pick it up. The scripture says this, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion, on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation, and said they would always go astray in their heart have not known my ways, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Okay, he quotes here from Psalm 95. Psalm 95, and actually the next 20 verses or so, is going to be a commentary on this psalm. So even up until chapter 4 next week, we'll still be talking about Psalm 95. Uh, psalm 95 is a, a call to worship. So it would be read or sung in a Jewish worship setting uh, to prepare people to worship, to get them in the right mood, to get their minds centered and cleared. Uh, And so the way the psalm works out, we won't read it this morning, but I would encourage you to read it this week, uh, because again, we'll we'll be talking about it next week as well. Uh, It starts out with a call to worship, so come let us sing, come let us make joyful noise to our God, and then it starts... Talking about who God is. So God is a great God. God is our king. He's the creator of all things. Then it moves into who God is to you and I. He's our God. We're his flock. We're his sheep. He takes care of us. But then in verse 7, the tone shifts dramatically. And that's where Hebrews picks up uh, this quotation here in verse 7. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as in the rebellion. When When they aroused my anger and I swore in my wrath, they would not enter the rest. And that's really, this is the end of the psalm. It's a a shorter psalm. And this is how it ends here in Hebrews 11. uh, As I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Which to me is kind of a mood kill. Uh, Like I don't understand how that's just great to get people ready to worship. Um, But what we have here in in Psalm 95 is a a call to worship that ends with the retelling of an ancient example of unbelief. And so Psalm 95 is a song that was written about a story that happened a long time ago uh, to the Israelites and he, he's telling the story and, and alluding to the story in order to make his point. So, what I want us to do is actually, if you had your Bible, flip to Numbers 14. I want to look at this story uh, so that we understand it and are ready to, to dive into the rest of Hebrews. Numbers 14 is where we'll be. Now, if you remember last week, as we went through chapter 3, verse 1 through 6, we were in Numbers 12, verse 7. 1-6 through six is pretty much a commentary on Numbers 12, 1-7. Some have wondered if the author of Hebrews actually has Numbers open as he's writing his book. Because he, he's, he's going chronologically through the book of Numbers. And so now we're in chapter 14. I'll catch you up to where we'll pick up the story. Um, the Israelites have been saved from Egypt, so God has rescued them out of slavery in Egypt. And part of the promise was, I will get you out of slavery and I'll put you in a land. I'll take you to the promised land, to Canaan, a land of milk and honey. And so, where we are, the Israelites have marched right up to the outside, the border of the promised land. And now we're going to pick up the story. They they send in 12 spies. If you grew up in Sunday school, you know this story. They send in 12 spies. 10 of them come back and say, what? Uh Uh-uh. We can't go in there. If you read the story, um, one of the big reasons is they're big. Just kind of comical. You just walked through a sea. uh, But they're tall, so you're scared of them. But they're tall, they're strong. We don't think we should go in. Even though God's telling us to go in, even though God's promised us this land, we can't do it. And then two, if you remember, Caleb and Joshua are kind of, I mean, bewildered. How are we not going to go in? How are we not going to trust? How are we not going to obey him? If you look in Numbers 14, 1, uh, this is the Israelites' response to the reports of the spy. This is what happens after the 10 say, we can't go in, and the two say, why? Why aren't we going in? and go back to Egypt. So after God saved the Israelites, they began to doubt his, his promises and his power to fulfill his promises. And so, I mean, they're going, we would rather be back in slavery. We would rather be back to Egypt. It would have been better if we died in Egypt or even in this wilderness on the way to the promised land. And what do they do? They, they go, hey, let's get rid of this Moses character. I don't think he knows what he's doing. Let's pick another leader and head back to Egypt. And then God's going to respond. So they have... Doubt creeping into their mind, which leads them to not do what God has told them to do. Which, by the way, and this is a great lesson for us, when God tells us to do something, oftentimes we don't do that, or when we disobey, it's because we think we know better. I mean, well, life will be better if I do this. I'll be happier, things will go better. And here in the story, you see, I mean, it looks comical to us. God is promising them land, rest, milk and honey, this beautiful, comfortable land, and they're going, let's go back to slavery. And you look at that and go, what morons. But then we do the exact same thing every day when we disobey. God's going, come over here. This is where rest is. This is where I promise to take care of you. This is where I'm going to bless you. And we go, no, we think it's better over here. We think this is more comfortable. This is what we're used to. And God's going to react to their disobedience. If you look in verse 11, the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I've done among them? So God, I I think here's wondering, I mean, what kind of short-term memory problem do these people have? I mean, it was weeks ago that they walked through a sea that literally the most powerful army in the world was destroyed by a body of water. And now they're going, I don't know about this. That guy was like 6'5". They were big. God's going... How are you not even remembering this? What, what is happening? How long are you going to not believe me, despise me? Um, if you read the story, we'll skip it a little bit. Um, but God actually right then wants to kill them all. He's like, problem solved. Let's just kill them all. Plague, pestilence, done. And Moses goes, no, don't kill them. Don't kill them. And God relents. Um, but look what he says in verse 26. 14, The Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing I will do to you. Your dead body shall fall in this wilderness, and of all your number listed in the census, from twenty and up, who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb and Joshua. But your little ones, who you said would become a prey, I will bring them in. And they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead body shall fall in this wilderness. So their disobedience led God to swear to them that they were not going to enter into the land. This is the story. God saves them, brings them up out of Egypt, right to the brink of the promised land. They're on the edge, right about to have their promises fulfilled. And they, they start to doubt. They start to disobey. And they don't enter the promised land. God says, Fine. Wander around for 40 years and your kids will go in. Now, the New Testament loves to understand. Like the earliest Christians, they thought of Christ's salvation. So Jesus, his work on the cross and his work in our hearts and in the world around us. They thought of it in terms of a new exodus. So the exodus to the, the Jewish people was the story of salvation. We were slaves, now we're free. God has brought us into a land. And Christians, the early Christians, the New Testament, is going to over and over again say, what's happened to them was a type of what's happening to us. It was a pattern. We see that and we understand more clearly what Christ is doing in us. So the New Testament is going to say, just like God defeated the Egyptians, so Christ on the cross defeated what was enslaving us, sin and death. Just like um, the the Israelites walked through the sea into being God's people, so we have been baptized and been brought into God's people. The book of Acts is going to say that the church is in the wilderness. We're wondering. And just like the Israelites, where are we? We're right in front of God's promises being fulfilled. So we've been converted, if we're Christians in here, we've been converted, we've been baptized, we've been brought into the family of God, but... I mean, we're not fully saved yet. Like, everything hasn't happened. We still sin. We still have pain. We're still going to die. We are not living face-to-face with God in the new heavens, the new earth, the resurrected bodies. There's still fulfillment to come of these promises that God has given us. And Hebrews, if we flip back to, to Hebrews chapter 3, Is going to say that the Christians, you and I, this, this group of people following Christ, we're in a, a similar position... A similar stage in our journey of faith, where we're standing directly before the fulfillment of God's promises. So just like the Israelites had been brought up out of slavery, right up to the brink of God fulfilling what he had told them he would do, so you and I are standing on that edge. And any good pastor takes an old story or an old text... Uh, and, and kind of applies it to your life, kind of makes it relevant, shows you how you fit into that, what that means to you. And Hebrews, again, Hebrews is a sermon he's preaching here. He's going to do the exact same thing. So if you look in verse 12, he's going to go into some lessons for us from this story. Since we're in a similar stage in our faith journey, what are some things we can learn from this situation? Verse 12, Hebrews 3, verse 12. Take care, brothers. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So he says here, we should learn from the past. We should look at what happened to the Israelites. And then we should be careful. He says, take care. Watch. Be sure that this doesn't happen. What does he say? That there's not an evil, unbelieving heart in you. He says, you and I need to guard against the temptation to not believe God. To not believe God. So here's what, what happens to us. We start following God. We, we, we start worshiping Christ, um, trying to, to live as he's called us to live. Um, and, and over time, doubts start to creep into our mind. So, God tells us, I will never leave you or forsake you. I mean, I'm here with you. Um, I will help you through everything. I'm right here beside you. But someone in our family dies. Or we get sick. Or we lose a job. Or any number of things happen. And at that moment, it feels like God cannot be further away from us. It feels like he has completely forsaken us. It feels like if he's not ignoring us, he's actively against us. I and mean, you're not wrong for feeling that. That's in the scriptures. David in the Psalms is going to go, where are you? What are you doing? Are you sleeping? You're not a bad person. I've been there. Where, what is happening? Why are you so far away? Why have you forsaken me? And these doubts start to creep into our mind. And he's saying here, be careful. Listen to what you're believing. Listen to the thoughts that are going through your head. Are you trusting him? Or are you starting to back away from what he said? From his promises? He says, I'll, I'll never let you face the temptation that I won't bring you through. But when you're in the midst of that temptation, you just feel like there's no way out. Or or he gives this command. So, husbands, love your wife like Christ loves the church. And, and and we go, Well, you don't know my wife. I'm not sure that's I'm just not sure that's gonna work out here. Forgive each other. Which, by the way, is a command. It's not a it's not an option. I mean, it's just, I just, it dawned on me Thursday. I'm like, it's not even like like we think about, oh, it's so hard and we should try to forgive. It, there's no instructions to try to forgive. It's forgive. Get over it. Forgive one another as God has forgiven you. And we go, oh, but they don't deserve it and it's not going to work out in this situation and I can't do it. And, and God tells us something. We have these doubts. We have this unbelief. And he's saying, take care. Watch. Learn how to feel that in your life. Learn how to notice when there's, there's hints of unbelief coming into your life. He, he's saying, get a pulse on yourself. Get a pulse on your spiritual health so that you'll know where you are. So, I'll give you an example. I was at Tomball Bible Church uh, two weeks ago preaching for Camp Blessing at a, a kind of a, a weekend thing Tomball was hosting. And I was preaching at a Sunday service there. And it's a, a bigger church, like 250, 300 people. Um, and I've spoken to crowds, I mean, that big, if not bigger. Uh, but it was my, my biggest like Sunday morning crowd. And there's lots of lights and big stage. And it was, it was very exciting. Uh, and I was nervous. I mean, I don't get really nervous here, no offense to you guys, um, but I've done this hundreds of times, and, and I know you and I love you. Um, but when I'm, I'm somewhere new, I mean, I get nervous, but usually not that nervous, but I was, like, dizzy nervous, like, during worship. I'm, like, sitting there, like, I don't know if I can stand up. Like, I don't know if I can get on the stage. I don't want to pass out. Uh, and, and so I'm just – my stomach's just wrenching. Um, and here's what – I mean, if I'm just being completely honest with you, I was nervous because I wanted to do good. I wanted to have my ego stroked when I was done. I wanted 15 people to come up to me and go, that was awesome. That was just what we needed. And I'd be like, yeah, God is so good in my mind. I'd be like, yeah, that was really good. And I wanted to impress the people who had invited me to come speak, Camp Blessing and and the church. And I was so concerned, much more concerned than anything else, with the 300 people sitting behind me. And so in that moment, God is is just kind of coming to me and he's going, I mean, preaching, you have an audience really of one. Like if I'm doing things right, I could care less what you think. I mean, just really honestly, as long as I'm preaching the scriptures, saying what God has told me to say. And in that moment, I'm going, there's so much about the gospel that I'm not believing right now. I'm not finding my worth in God at all. I'm finding my worth in what I'm about to do in the next 30 minutes. That's why I'm nervous. I shouldn't, I shouldn't care about what these people will think about me. And so while that may be silly, I mean, you're nervous. You're about to speak to a lot of people. To me, what's happening there is I'm feeling some unbelief in my heart. Like I'm just feeling a little bit of wickedness. Like you're not finding your worth in Christ. You're not living your life based on who He is and what He's called for you. You're not understanding why you're here. Why have even asked you to preach? He's saying take care lest you, you see this belief, this unbelief start to creep into your heart. Get a pulse on it. One of the, uh, I think, best questions uh, that you and I can ask um, when we're being tempted, when we're um, struggling with sin is—is is what part of the gospel am I not believing? What part of the gospel am I not believing? And he says here, why? Why do you take care? I mean, why should you be so careful? that There's not unbelief leading in your heart because it's going to lead you to fall away from the living God. Because that unbelief will will manifest itself in disobedience. That's how it works. Unbelief leads to disobedience. So when I was in high school. When I was in high school, I got real sick. Um, and uh, I mean, my main symptom was, was anxiety problems. And so I was just, just anxiety attack after anxiety attack after anxiety attack. Uh, and I got agoraphobia. I mean, you can't leave the house, fear of open spaces. Uh, you just fall over with a panic attack. Um, and so I'm going to the doctors, and they can't really figure out what's wrong. Uh, so what do they do immediately? Well, you treat symptoms. Um, can we get him to not be I mean, so uptight? Can we get him to be able to step out of the house without like, crumbling in fear? We do that, and so treat the symptoms. Um, but here's what I've learned and, and what I've noticed in life. Um, if, if doctors are only treating your symptoms, you don't have long to live. I mean, that's all they're concerned about is treating your symptoms. It's not a good prognosis for you. To be healthy, what you want to do is go to the root of the cause. You don't want to just attack symptoms. You want to fix it at the start. You want to get rid of it altogether. And so we're doing tests and tests and tests, Now I seeing doctor after doctor after doctor. I finally figured out it was my thyroid. And we fix that, problem solved. You go to the root of the issue. Now the difference between unbelief and disobedience is the same difference between the root of a a disease and the symptom of a disease. The unbelief is the root, it's the cause. The symptom, how you see that played out, is the disobedience. So I think often Christians maybe are a little too concerned with the symptoms in their life. So why do I keep falling? Why am I doing this? Why is my relationship with that person so screwed up? When instead we need to be going to, what's the state of my heart here? What am I, again, what am I not believing about the gospel? At best, you manage symptoms, and that's what you, I mean, you're managing at best. You can maybe get two or three weeks with willpower, and then you're back to it. And two or three more weeks, and then you're stuck in the cycle for the rest of your life. You'll be miserable. Everyone around you will be miserable. She so would say, go to the root. Take care. Of it. See what, what what is there unbelief in your heart? If you're do if you're not loving your wife, if you're not leading your family, if you're not showing self-control, instead of just worrying about the symptoms, get to the root of the problem here. And so this is what happens. This is a, a fundamental truth of human life. Actions flow directly from belief. This is just how it works. What you believe will eventually translate into your actions. So when we're, we're struggling, when we're sinning, the scriptures are going to say over and over again, go back to your heart. This is why Jesus in the gospel says what? I mean, constantly. He says, it's said not to commit adultery, but if you look at her, I mean, what are you, what are you accomplishing? All you've done is stop an outward symptom, but the disease is just as alive in you as it ever was. It's going at your heart. Take care lest there's an evil, unbelieving heart inside of you that would lead you to fall away from the living God. Look at what he says next in verse 13. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. He says this is not a, a work of an individual, but of a community. So if you really want to do this, you really want to protect your heart, you really want to guard against this unbelief that will lead you down a path to disobedience, what you need to do is get with a group of people and do it together. You can't do it alone. That's what he's saying here. Is this is what? Exhort one another. You and I must intentionally spur one another on. In a sense, we, we've got to wash each other's backs. We've got to take care of each other. We've got to make sure that we're all getting closer to Christ, closer to the promise, pressing into who He is, what He offers us, and growing in our faith, maturing in our understanding of Him and our obedience to Him. And so this works on every level of relationships. This idea that you and I need to spur each other on. So we'll hit a few. Um, marriage. Spouses. Husbands. Are you asking, how's your how's your life? How's your prayer life? How's your walk with Christ? How's your scripture life? What can I do? Because here's, so I don't know a lot about girls. But I've, I know, I mean, sometimes they just don't want their problem solved. They just want to talk about it. I mean, get a whiteboard out. Fix it. But they just want to talk about it. So not even, I mean, what can I do? But just can we talk about it? Can you tell me about it? Can I pray for you about it? wives with their husbands, encouraging. I mean, here's what I'm just wondering. If you're not doing that to your spouse, who are you expecting to do it? Is it spur each other on? Are you not watching their back? Are you not helping them forward? So parents and kids. I mean, are you going to put it on auto, autopilot and, and hope it turns out alright in 18 years? Well, that doesn't work out well. Are you going to export it to a youth pastor, to a youth group, or whatever it is, to a school? That's not going to work well either. I mean, what's your excuse? Do you have a good one for not praying with your kids, for not talking to them about who Christ is, what he means to you, how important he is? Who's going to do? I mean, what are you expecting to happen here? We're a community of people who all struggle with unbelief, who all struggle with disobedience, and we need each other to spur each other on. Now, there are two sides to this coin here of, of spurring each other on. Um, and they're really just two sides of the same coin. Uh, one side is encouragement, and one side is rebuke. And they're both they both flow out of this love for someone else and wanting to see the best for them. So every single one of us is going to need, at times, someone to praise us and to give us hope, to to push us along with love and with joy. I mean, we're going to need encouragement. And then every single one of us is going to need at times someone to sit down and say, hey, we need to talk about this. This is not working right. I don't know if you've seen this in your life. So, I mean, this is, you can try your very best to control the unbelief in your heart, but at the end of the day, guess what's the most deceiving thing to you? It's your heart. I mean, at the end of the day, you're very limited in that. You're going to find yourself really out of joint. What you need, oftentimes, someone outside to look at it and go, are you thinking about this Right? Like, is this really working the way you think it's working? You need someone to, to lovingly... So, um, Jason, a friend of mine, pastors in prayer, he's a preacher. He says like this, I love it. He says, you need people in your life that are allowed to hurt you. That have permission to wound you. Now, not everybody. I mean, don't be a doormat and just let everyone walk over you. There needs to be one, two, three people who have an open invitation to hurt your feelings to say something that's going to be uncomfortable, to make your friendship awkward for the next two days. You need someone who's going to point out truths to you. And so uh, just a couple of things as, as I've seen community grow and, and been passing for a few years. One, um, if you don't react well to a rebuke, to a loving um, pointing out of, of some flaw or some issue that needs to be discussed or talked about, uh, it's going to stop. So you can't, Don't complain if you don't have community if you blow up every time someone points something out to you. I mean, I would say it like this. If you're not wrong about something four or five times a day, eventually people are going to stop talking to you about important things. That's just how life works. And I'll say this, too. If you either are this person or have this person in your life who only rebukes you, I mean, eventually that's going to stop, too. I would say maybe like five, six times more you need encouragement than rebuke. For me to sit down with someone and say, hey, can we talk about this? Like I just don't know how this is working in your life. I'm going to need months and months of loving them, showing that I care for them, of serving them, of encouraging them. Text. Not while I'm driving, but text. <laughs> hey, hope you're doing well. Hey, I'm praying for you. Things like that. The Christian community spurring each other on. Encouragement. Rebuke. He's saying we're standing before this, this fulfillment, this promise. We need to watch out for each other. Look what he says here verse 14 well before we get there verse 13 he, he says you, why we need to do this one of the reasons is because we'll get hardened by the deceitfulness of sin I mean because sin kind of has this ability to one it, I mean it lies to us and, and two it hardens our hearts so I mean psychologists will tell you this uh, if you do something enough eventually it's normal to you I mean eventually you rationalize it in your mind whether consciously or subconsciously which is why sometimes we can look back on events in history and go how are you doing that Well, I mean, that did not seem out of place to them. Same thing with you and I. I If something's normal to us, it's normal to us. We need someone else to step in and say, this is maybe not how it should work. I know that's maybe how you grew up, but but relationships should be different here. You should talk differently to certain people. Sin, I mean, when we sin, I mean, when we're actively disobeying, it changes the way we see the world around us. We just see things differently. We see ourselves differently, we see God differently, and our hearts get hardened. And so we need each other um, to spur us on from that. In verse 14, he says, For we've come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Which is very similar to how we ended last week in verse 6. when he says, We are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. So what he's saying here is is that while beginning in your Christian faith is important, um, equally so is, is finishing. I mean, it's a great thing to, to begin something. That's, that's great. It's that's a good start, but you got to finish it. I mean, you got to see that thing through. So I'm, I'm driving, and it's not enough to go. Well, I've gotten two hours done. I've started this thing, and then to go to sleep. That's not gonna. That's not gonna help at all. I might as well have not started. I'm gonna end up in a ditch. I'm gonna end up dead. He's saying you got to finish this thing, and, and then he's saying we talked about this last week. Our share in Christ, our participation in Him in His victory, it's confirmed when we persevere by our perseverance. So we're not earning it, we're not achieving it, we're not buying it. All we're doing is confirming it when we hold fast to our faith. Faith is a gift. We'll talk about that in a moment. Because says, we know that we've come to share in Christ, we hold our confidence firm to the end. So these are the lessons he's taking from this story, from Psalm 95, that you and I, we need to spur each other on, we need to protect our hearts, we need to look out for signs of danger And then he's going to end with with just a few warnings here. So pick it up in verse 15. He's going to give us three questions. I'll, I'll warn you here before we read. 15 through 19, up through the end of this chapter, is a scary passage, frightening passage. It really should frighten you. 15. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. So he's quoting again. And then he says this the three questions. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. This first question here. Who was it that heard the promise and that rebelled? Like was... Was this group of people who rebelled and didn't enter the rest, were they the most pagan of pagan people? Had they been sacrificing children for years? Had they set up a union against God? Be Like, we will destroy you. We are actively waging war against you. We will destroy your kingdom. He you said, no, that's not the group of people that rebelled and received this punishment. It was the same people who had witnessed this mighty miracle, who had experienced God powerfully, who at one time had faith. I mean, they were singing songs. They were following They made decisions of trust. It was those people who let unbelief and disobedience into their life and then found themselves missing out on God's promise. He's saying here that past belief doesn't guarantee future faithfulness. So there's no no glory days as a Christian. I mean, the fact that you were close to God 10 years ago means very little today if you have no faith, if you're not pressing into him. I mean, what you did two years ago is not going to help you if there's dangerous situations now. You can't live off of that. Instead, you've got to, um, you've got to hold on to your faith, your belief, every day. It's, something that, that, it's a day-to-day commitment. It's a day-to-day choice, decision. Where every day you wake up and you go, Today I will follow. Today I will trust. Today I will worship. Today I will seek Him today. Again and again and again. Which is why daily Bible reading is so important. Daily prayer. Daily worship. Daily community. This is not something you, you decide and get stirred up to on Sunday. And then you coast through the week for Sunday. Monday, you need to choose Tuesday. Because otherwise, what's going to happen is situations will come in the week or whenever in you know, the fall. And he's saying, who who was the ones that rebelled? Who who were they? What had they experienced? Maybe the I mean, they had experienced God much more than I think most of us have. In a real tangent, They walked through a sea that had divided for them. And yet they weren't careful. They didn't enter the rest. He's saying, you and I need to be careful. We need to be warned. And, and then he says this. With whom was he provoked for 40 years? So who was he mad at? Why was he mad at them? It was those... Who sinned? whose bodies fell in the wilderness. Blatant sin has serious consequences. I mean, sin, without repentance, without a walking out of it at all, over and over and over again, will hurt you. It will have consequences. It's like playing with fire. You can be as safe as you want to be, but eventually it will hurt you. I think he's saying here, we, we need to not have um, young person syndrome, which my dad lovingly explained to me as I was learning how to drive. Uh, so I'll pass on the knowledge to you. Young people have this tendency, um, I mean, young people, I don't, it was a long time ago, but (laughs) to say that that will never happen to me. That will never happen to me. So, hey, if you make certain lifestyle choices, these are the kind of things that happen. You might end up here, you might have this disease, you might have these, that never, I mean, that's just that never happens to me. Then what happens is, it surprise, it happens to you. Or, don't drink and drive. Well, that i mean—that won't happen to me. Well, it happens to a lot of people and it might happen to you if you do it. Your your consequences will catch up to you. I mean, the choices that you make. You can't just think, well, that's never going to happen to me. He's saying, blatant sin, you're playing with that, it's its going to to affect you in a serious, significant way. And then he, he says, it was those who sin whose bodies fell in the wilderness, sin, it brings death. And so this is the entire witness of the biblical text of the entire scriptures what comes from sin, the wages of sin when sin is full grown Romans, James, death comes, this is what it does, this is what it works in you, it will never bring you life, it will never bring you joy, it will never bring you peace, it will never bring you fulfillment you touch it, you play with it, you hold on to it, this is what comes with it, those who sin those whose bodies fell in the wilderness he, he kind of repeats question 18, whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest but those who were disobedient and those who who had let unbelief creep in and had decided to disobey God. So he recaps it here in verse 19. He says, So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. (laughs) Unbelief which leads to disobedience can cause us to miss out on God's promise. When we let unbelief so infiltrate our hearts that we start to disobey, we're in serious danger of missing out what god has promised us so this is what he's saying here as he ends up chapter three he's taking a story he's taking a past event he's saying we're in a similar situation just like they were on the brink of the promising the brink of having their salvation fulfilled so you and i are right there but we can't let up we can't fall asleep we got to protect our hearts we got to protect each other We've got to know that, that some things have consequences. So if you look at it from God's perspective, which I think is sometimes the safer thing to do, and, and some depending on what tradition you grew up in or are more a part of, um, you may hear this side more than this side or whatnot. But God's perspective is this. He loves, places affection on his people. He puts them in his hand. He sets out for them eternal life. And there's nothing that could ever happen to stop that. Nothing. This is where you get this beautiful doctrine of perseverance of the saints. God has you in his hand. You are in his hand. At the core of my being, I believe that there is nothing, nothing that I could do that would ever, I mean, that that I would go up to heaven and Jesus would be like, well, I didn't plan on paying for that on the cross. I didn't see that one coming. No, he, from the foundations of the world, chose me, loved me, set his affections on me. But then from the human side, you have these these passages in Scripture that are a bit frightening. That even though we may have had this powerful experience with God in the past, if we don't hold fast to it, we may just end up missing out on what we were heading towards. So you should feel a tension here. There's a definite tension here. That's okay. It's okay to let this rub on you, but you've got to let... You can't water down either side of that. You've got to let this passage speak He says, those people didn't believe and they didn't get the promise. So God forbid that you and I would carelessly fall into unbelief. would fall away and and find ourselves missing out. So here's how we'll wrap up this morning. And I would encourage you. Faith is a gift. Scripture says, even obedience is a gift. It's grace. God gives it to us. And so one of my my favorite lines in Scripture is Mark 9, where someone says to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. That's just a great thing to pray. I believe, but help my unbelief. Is that, so I have unbelief in my heart. You have unbelief in your heart. We've got, to, we've got to fight against it. We've got to walk out of it. We've got to press into Christ, hold fast to our confidence. So here's my question. Did you start out strong, and are you now slowing down? I mean, are you taking your foot off the gas pedal? Were you at one time excited and you're now kind of grumbling? You're not so sure about it? Because it's happened before. Are you getting drowsy at the wheel? Are you finding yourself every three weeks going, oh, I fell asleep, I fell asleep? Because that's a big red flag that you're in a dangerous area, that something needs to change. You need to roll the windows down, you need to turn the music up, you need to call a friend scriptures are saying don't don't let up we don't don't press off the gas don't fall asleep at the wheel it's a dangerous game to play and it's been played and it didn't work out well for them by god's grace those things are not true of us who follow after christ who have been so transformed by his grace that we follow with faith and with worship but let us press on let us spur each other on let's hold fast until the end of our days. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for our time together this morning. I pray as always that your scriptures would speak clearly to us, that we would be challenged and convicted and encouraged, um, that we would find in you a perfect Savior, we would find in you forgiveness, redemption, and hope, and that we would be able to walk out of that which brings death into life, into joy into peace we would follow you and know you and share that love with the people around us on your mission we love you it's in your son's name that we pray